Alrighty. If you've got your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 2. As we were seeing this morning, I was just reminded of the goodness of God. How good it is to serve our Lord. And all the good things we have. Remember it says in Romans, if God is for us, then who can be against us? And if we think about all the benefits we have in being in Christ and belonging to Him, then it's wow. It just doesn't get any better than what we have already. So, in effect, it's quite silly to want the things of the world because we already have more than what we can even imagine, ask or imagine. So I'll just pray and we'll get into it. Father, thank you for another opportunity to be in your word. We thank you that you have given us uh, this opportunity to get together. Lord, we know that there's some churches, like in California, where they're banned from meeting. So I just pray that you'll rectify that situation and that those churches can get back together. And Lord, I just pray, Father, for the people in Melbourne and other parts of Australia who are struggling to find fellowship and are lonely, I just pray that you'll cause them to to have good fellowship with other Christians too. So we just commit them to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, again, we always start with this. What's the outline of the book of Revelation? Hopefully by the time I've finished, you would know it. <laughs> it's Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. The things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. So the things which you've seen is chapter 1. It's Jesus revealing himself to John. Chapters 2 and 3 are the things which are. It's the church age, which we're working through now. And then the things which will be meditated after these things is chapter 4 and on. So let's jump straight in. So I'm going to put the slide up, and it's got first five churches up there. And so I'm just going to summarize each of those churches very quickly the first letter was addressed to the church of ephesus now this is from jesus now i find this really amazing and i kind of wish jesus would write us a letter and say what we're doing good and what we need to improve and so this is what jesus is doing for these specific churches but they apply to all because they're meant to be read to all churches each letter was meant to be read to all the churches all right so ephesus was the loveless church and it represented the majority of churches up to about 100 AD. Now, why is it so easy for us to leave Jesus our first love? One of the reasons is because our hearts can so easily become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The second letter was addressed to the church of Smyrna. Smyrna is a persecuted church. And the majority of churches during the years 100 AD to 312 AD were being persecuted. They were a pure church with Jesus finding no fault in them. The third letter was addressed to the church of Pergamos, the compromising church. The church of Pergamos characterized the church from about 313 AD to 600 AD. This is when the church was included into the Roman Empire. And to fit in with the world, they became like the world. That's what it means by compromise. The fourth letter was to the church of Thyatira, the corrupt church. This is from AD 601 to AD 1500 or 1500, and it also goes on to the rapture when the church is taken up. And this is characterized by this false prophet, Jezebel, who is a bad influence on this church. She's corrupting the church, and therefore this church is called the corrupt church. Now, she led them both in the initial or literal interpretation where John's writing to this church at the specific location at that specific time. She was leading them to commit adultery both physically and spiritually. And also, later on, that would be true. And the practice of inquisition. And that became a hallmark of the church age when the Catholic Church was the dominant church. So this week I want to finish our study of the fourth church, the church of Thyatira, 
and also start our study of the fifth church, the Church of Sardis. And next week, I want to go into the doctrine of the Reformation, which is quite interesting, and it really helps us to understand the gospel and why the Reformation was so necessary. So I'm going to start by reading the letters to the churches of Thyatira and Sardis, because the Church of Sardis came out of the Church of Thyatira. The Reformation came out of the Catholic Church. So let's read them. So Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. And remember, this is referring to the Catholic Church, and I'll show you why in a little while. So Revelation 2, verse 18, reading through to chapter 3, verse 6. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things, says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience, and as for your works, the last are more than the first. Now we think of the Catholic Church and we think, oh, what a terrible church. But God sees this. God sees something really good. God sees him as improving. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants, my servants, to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. I like that, hold fast. And he who overcomes, he the one who holds fast, and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He was in ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now we move to the Reformation Church, the Church of Sardis. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect or complete before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we went through all the verse by verse last week, the church of Thyatira, and we explained how it fitted in at the time, but now we can look at how it fits prophetically. So. After the collapse of the Roman Empire, the Roman Catholic Church emerged, and it's still with us today. So the last four churches, the Catholic Church, the Reformation Church, the Missionary Church, Church of Philadelphia, and the Laodicean Church, the lukewarm Church, will all coexist until the rapture, until the church is taken away, and then there's a tribulation. So I'm going to give some reasons why I think the Thyatira Church prophetically speaks of the Catholic Church. So, first, just as Jezebel was characterized by Inquisition and land grabbing, so was the Catholic Church. It's a known historical fact that during the Inquisition period, which lasted from AD 600 to 1500, the Catholic Church amassed huge amounts of wealth through political power plays. And consequently, today, the Catholic Church is still 
extremely wealthy due to their large land holdings and banking system. So, not bashing Catholics, it's just, that's a fact. So, for 900 years, vast amounts of money, property and treasures were accumulated by keeping people in spiritual darkness. And that leads to my second point. Just like Jezebel was characterised by sexual immorality, so was the Catholic Church. And unfortunately, in a limited way, the scandals and abuse still continue. For example, this is how it used to be. Not like this anymore, thankfully. But if you were going to a party on Saturday evening, you could buy an indulgence from the priest and thus be pre-forgiven of any ensuing sin. And this kind of sin was also practiced by the popes themselves. I'm just going to give you a small example. For example, Sergius III became Pope in 904 to 967 AD. And he ushered in what history calls the rule of harlots. During which time his mistress publicly accompanied him to the papal palace. Now Sergius's grandson, John X, continued this legacy until he was actually killed in his bedroom while committing adultery. Next came Benedict IX, who assumed the position of Pope at 12 years of age through the practice of simony or simony, which is selling positions within the church to the highest bidder. So the richest person gets the highest position. Benedict IX was so corrupt that the citizens of Rome drove him out of the city, replacing him with Clement III, who was appointed by King Henry III. Clement III was not a Roman because, in the words of King Henry III, I appoint no one from Rome because no priest can be found in this city who is free from the pollution of fornication, that is, sexual immorality, and simony, <laughs> money. Now, during this time, the doctrine of purgatory was also developed, which stated that one could speed up the process of the purging of a deceased loved one's soul by buying candles and lighting them on his behalf. And finally, just as Jezebel killed the prophets of God, so the Catholic Church killed many true believers. In fact, tens of millions of true believers. And examples include Hugh Latimer and John Huss, and they were followers of John Wycliffe. Now, why were they burned at the stake? What did John Wycliffe want to do? Well, he said that it wasn't right that one had to go through a priest to get his sins forgiven. He said purgatory and the selling of indulgences were an abomination. He said that the Mass being held in Latin, a language that people could not understand, was nothing of what Jesus was about. As the fire that would burn them at the stake was lit, John Huss turned to Hugh Latimer and said, Today they are igniting a candle that will never go out. And it's true. It's still going. So again, I'm not here to bash Catholics. I'm just here to present the facts and how this fits into church history. Unfortunately, None of our church history is all that brilliant. I'm not saying that whole Catholic Church is like this. The actual scriptures here say that most of the Catholic Church haven't fallen for this lie, but there is this lie within the Catholic Church. Now, the application for us, how does this apply to us? Well, it's quite easy for us also to have idols. We can look to a church, a person, a structure, a program, and we can say, I'm going to put all my hope in that structure, that organization. And people do it all the time. You think of the cults, that's exactly what they do. They put their hope in an organization. You belong to, you're baptized into an organization, not the Lord. And I had a friend, and uh, his name was Douglas, and he was a Catholic. And me and another Christian, we tried to explain grace to him. He just didn't get it. And he had to keep going to Mass, and his hope was in the organization. It was, his hope was in the structure. And so he did everything right. He kept going, going to the Mass because he was getting old, and he left all his money to the church, and or most of it. And yeah, that was his belief. That was what he was taught from a young boy. Belong to the church, be a good person, and hopefully you'll get to heaven. 
Now, this tendency of the Catholic Church to keep the scriptures out of the reach of common people is awful. And it actually continued until fairly recent times. They had their masses in Latin and people couldn't understand it. Now, this idea continues today when some people who believe that you can't understand the Bible unless you've been to seminary or Bible college because it's too complicated. Is that true? <laughs> of course not. What do we need to understand the most important themes or doctrines of the Bible? Holy Spirit and the faith of a mustard seed. Yep, and the faith of a child. You come as a child, okay? You simply believe. It's a simple belief in what God has said is true. Now, Greek and Hebrew can help you work out the fine details, but never forget that the book we hold in our hands was written for you and me, for the man and woman on the street. So don't let anyone tell you that you can't know God's will or his heart or his ways or his word because Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would teach us and bring things to our remembrance. Now, the last thing about the church of Thyatira, which I believe represents a Catholic church, is that the word Thyatira, according to some scholars, speaks of continual sacrifice. Now, there's a doctrine in the Catholic church, which is historically practiced and presently practiced, and it embraces the idea that in communion, the elements are transformed into the literal physical body of Christ in a process called transubstantiation. So if you're a Catholic priest, you must make sure that all the wine is drunk and all the bread is eaten because they believe that he can't pour the wine down the sink or throw the bread into the bin because they believe it's the actual body of Christ. And they think that the continual sacrifice of Christ is what really brings grace or salvation. And that's why they have to keep having Mass. Now, this is in direct contrast to what Jesus declared from the cross. And he cried, It is finished, yes. John 19.30 We must always remember that the price is paid, and it's past tense. The work is done. Now, again, Jesus said, It is finished, not it is started. That wasn't the start of the sacrifice, that was the end of the sacrifice. The once and for all sacrifice that brought the freedom to pay the penalty for our sins. So we don't earn our salvation, it's a gift, so enjoy it. Always remember the words, or what the words, it is finished, mean. They mean, the price is paid, my sin debt has been erased, the work of salvation is complete. It is finished. So, the fifth church, the church of Sardis. Now, this is known as a dead church, and you think that the Reformation was a good thing. Well, it was. We'll find out more as we go through. First, I'm going to just quickly give the history of, not the whole history, but just a really brief version of it. So, first of all, why did the Reformation occur? Because of the Jezebel mentality and her false doctrines. Things are so bad in the Catholic Church with the false teaching of purgatory the selling of indulgences, which encourage people to sin, the rampant sexual immorality being modelled from the top down, the greed, inquisition, keeping the masses in ignorance by not letting them read the Bible for themselves, the murder of tens of millions of true believers who followed Jesus' command to hold fast. Remember, during this time, there were many people who held fast to the truth. And the practice of idolatry, the practice of praying to people like Mary, and worst of all, the false gospel of works, salvation, that they believe and teach. So next week we're going to go through that and unpack that, what they believe and what the truth is. So what is the history of the Reformation? Well, it goes back to 1330. Does anyone remember the first guy that really started this? I've already mentioned his name. Yeah, John Wycliffe. Yeah. He was born in England. He was an Oxford scholar and a Catholic priest. It's the only kind of priest you could be. <laughs> right. now he began to write about the need to get away from papal edicts and get back to the Bible. He began to 
publicly question doctrines such as transubstantiation and continual sacrifice so much that he was excommunicated by the powers in Rome. Now, he was safe over in England because of the way things were back then. But his disciples, men like John Huss and Hugh Latimer, were burned at the stake. And that caused this spark of reformation that would burn throughout England later on. Now, moving forward in time to the year 1483, there was a coal miner, I don't know how to pronounce this, in Eiselben? Eiselben? Uh, Saxton, Germany, and his wife gave birth to a baby boy, and they named him Martin. Martin Luther. And he didn't want Martin to go into the mine shafts, and so they enrolled him into university to study law. But while he was walking on campus one day, there was this massive thunderstorm. He was petrified. There's lightning crashing down everywhere. And he prayed to St. Anne, the patron saint of coal miners, if you save me from this lightning, I will become a monk. So he didn't get hit by lightning, and he kept his promise, and he became a monk and went to seminary. Now, after two years, he earned his doctorate, but the more he studied theology, the more he knew he could never be righteous enough to earn God's favor. This is the effect of a legalistic gospel, a law-based gospel. In his attempt to earn God's favor, he regularly beat himself, slept outside in freezing temperatures, and fasted for long periods. Still not experiencing the reality of God in his life, he decided to journey to Rome. He went to Rome to see the Pope. Maybe the Pope can help me. On his way to Rome, however, he got really sick with this nasty fever, and then he went to recover in an Alpine monastery, and one of the monks there, who saw Luther struggling, said, hey, why don't you read the book of Habakkuk? Because Habakkuk wrestled with issues. Habakkuk was a guy who really wrestled with stuff. And so Luther took this other monk's advice, and he came to Habakkuk chapter 4, verse 2, which says, The just shall live by faith. And he finally understood. The light went on. (sighs) It's not about me. It's all about God. If I'm going to be just, forgiven, perfect, it's not because of what I do or who I am, but by faith in God and what God has done and who God is. Then he went to Rome and he's really excited. I get to see the Pope. And then he leaves shocked by the abuses and hypocrisy he found there. And he comes back to Germany and he realizes he's got to take a stand. So in 1517, he nailed a parchment containing 95 Thesis, challenging the Pope. He nailed it to the door of the church or university there in Wittenberg. And three and a half years later, Rome answered. And they said, retract or die. Pretty typical. After burning the response, the letter from the Pope, Luther was summoned to Rome. In 1521, This is a funny name, but the Diet of Worms. I wouldn't have been very hungry that day. Um, The Diet of Worms was convened, at which the church realized, due to his popularity, they had a problem with Martin Luther. And they said, "Mm, we'll give you another chance to recant. And what did he say? What's his classic reply? Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. Now, Luther's stand gave rise to the birth of the Jesuits. Jesuits are an order of priests, and their job, especially back then, their job was to enforce papal power, no matter what the cost. So, the Reformation is sweeping across Europe. We've got Luther in Germany, Zingli in Switzerland, Knox in Scotland, and they're all calling for a return to the Bible. And that strengthened the determination of the Jesuits to stand by the Pope and stem the tide of what they perceived to be heresy. And so you got this battle going on. And here's an example of the lengths the Jesuits would go to protect the Catholic Church. So, you got the Czech Republic. Well, back then, part of it was called Bohemia. And in 1600, 
There are about 4 million people there. And 80% were protest amps. That's where the word protest, uh, Protestants come from. They were protesting. They were like standing firm with Luther and that. They were protesting the Catholic Church. That's where the name Protestant comes from. It's protest ants. Two years later, the population of Bohemia numbered only 800,000. And surprise, surprise, most of them were Catholic. So the Czech Republic today is a typically Catholic country. The protestants, the ones who protested, were basically killed or got rid of. And the same thing happened in different European countries. So you think of these countries and we think Catholic. Why? Because the worst bloodshed in history took place in the wake of the Reformation. It's even worse than the persecution of Christians under the Roman emperors and the Holocaust of Nazi Germany. It's worse than that. It's pretty serious. And it's not so bad today, but you know, Northern Ireland and the conflict between the Protestants and the Catholics, it all goes back to this. So, I'm saddened and inspired at the same time, but I'm thankful they took their stand for the truth of the gospel. Many people died so that we could have the truth come through. But there's an application for us here. We need to have the same fervency and resolve today because there are multiple false gospels being presented today. We have a lot of legalistic gospels and we have the prosperity gospel. I just want to put up Galatians 2, 4 and 5. And this occurred because a false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy at our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. So what does a false gospel do? It brings you into bondage. To whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. So, thank you reformers. They did not yield submission even for an hour and the truth of the gospel continued. We need to do the same thing today. Just like Paul didn't submit to the intimidation of those promoting a false gospel in his day, the Reformation Church didn't submit to the intimidation of those promoting the false gospel in their day. And what was the result? Well, the truth of the gospel continues with us. We need to do the same thing. We need to stand up for the truth of the gospel because without it, we are in bondage. The gospel brings freedom. And that's why the Reformation believers were so willing to die for their faith, for spiritual freedom. Now, I went through all that because that helps us to understand what Jesus is going to say to the church of Sardis. So let's start going through the church of Sardis verse by verse. So Revelation chapter 3, I'm going to read the first six verses. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember therefore how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 1 there says, and to the angel of the church of Sardis. So we've looked at the church of Sardis prophetically, looking at as the, the Reformation church. But we need to also look back at what it was like at the time. So we'll just do that quickly now. What was the, the town of Sardis and the church of Sardis like at the time when Jesus wrote this letter? Well, firstly, Sardis was a wealthy city. They had gold. And they were the first ones to mint coins. So modern currency, money, has its origins in the city of Sardis. 
The first coins were minted there. And secondly, Sardis, because of its money, was also known for its softness and luxury. They had a high standard of living. They would have been the town we had all the BMWs and Mercedes and Rolls Royces and Lamborghinis and stuff like that. Thirdly, it had a well-deserved reputation for apathy and immorality. They had this massive temple there to the mother goddess, Cybele. And its columns were 20 metres high. That's, I don't know, 10 storeys high, if one storey is 2 metres. And 6 feet or 2 metres in diameter. So this is a huge temple. Now what do they do there? Well, surprise, surprise, <laughs> sex and immorality. They had temple prostitutes and all that kind of stuff. So that's what Sardis was like. And even in that time, Sardis was so low, like we never think of Sydney as the gay capital of Australia. It's like a bit contemptible. It's like all that, and San Francisco in America and stuff like that. It's like Sardis was like the Sydney of Australia, all the sexual sin happening there. Or you think of in Perth, like Northbridge. So Sardis was also known for its lack of discipline and dedication. It's really interesting, the story of what happened to Sardis. The Greek historian Herodotus tells a story, and I'll just summarize it. King Cyrus, he was the guy that set the captives free, or as a Darius, but at the same time, who set the Israelites free from Babylon. He was of the king of the Medes and Persians at the time of Daniel, around 549 BC. Now, King Cyrus came to Sardis, and he's looking up at this you know, city on a hill, basically, on these cliffs. And he says, whoa, there doesn't seem to be any way to climb these steep cliff walls surrounding the city. And so he offered a rich reward to any soldier in his army who could figure out a way to get up to the city. Now, one soldier was looking, and he was watching another soldier on top, and the soldier on top dropped his helmet. Doom, 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 doom right down the bottom. And so this soldier climbed down the cliff. There was a hidden trail. And so the soldier in Cyrus's army says, aha, so that night they got a detachment of troops and up they went. They found the hidden trail and when they got to the city, guess what? There was no one there. It wasn't even guarded. And they just walked straight in, took it over. They were so self Confident. They were so confident in their high walls. Guess what? It happened again almost 200 years later. Antiochus, the great, he was the, um, the guy we talked about it when he we went through the book of Daniel. He's part of the Grecian Empire. And he attacked again this overconfident city, and they still hadn't set a watch for the walls. You know, they still weren't defending the city. So that's really important because this is what Jesus is going to refer to. Sardis has fallen twice in history because of overconfidence and a failure to watch. So we'll get back to that later when Jesus talks about that. So uh, verse 1, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So here Jesus is describing himself to the church at Sardis and as usual he borrows something from chapter 1. Now, why the number seven? Seven spirits, seven churches. Well, the number seven in the Bible means completeness. So, therefore, what it's saying here is that Jesus holds the fullness of the Spirit of God. Why would he be saying this? Well, it indicates that this is a deficiency of this church, a lack of being led by the Spirit, a lack of being empowered, by the Spirit. I've got a quote from John Corson. The seven spirits of God refers to the sevenfold nature of the Holy Spirit as seen in Isaiah 11.2. Why would this description be repeated in conjunction with Sardis? Because while most traditional mainline Protestants like Lutherans, Presbyterians, Wesleyans, Methodists and Congregationalists champion everything from homosexuality to environmental issues, they are wary or avoid the ministry of the Spirit. 
And the seven stars, also in verse 1, Jesus also has a fullness of the church in his hand. He has all the church in his hand. And we find that in Revelation chapter 1, verse 20. Okay, going on in verse 1, it says, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, that you are dead. So now we find out about what Jesus knows about the church of Sardis. Remember, we can't hide who we are. Jesus sees everything. Did you know that we can get a personal diagnosis from the Lord of our spiritual state? The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing between bone and marrow, soul and spirit. So if we get into the word of God, we'll get our own personal diagnosis of where our heart's at. And verse 1, it says that, that you have a name, that you are alive. So they had a reputation of life and vitality. They looked like a great church. Lots of programs, lots of things happening. Now, it's interesting, and as an application, that the word translated name is anoma in Greek, and we get our word denomination from this. So you have a denomination, you have this reputation that you're alive. And there's people who say, well, look at my denomination. Look at this denomination. And what they're doing is they're depending on reputation. They're depending on history. They're depending on what it used to be. And so they're resting on tradition and not relationship. And that's a big thing, I think, of why Jesus says this next bit. Because the the next part of this verse says, but you are dead. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was a member of the Church of Sardis, I would be shocked to hear Christ's evaluation of my church. You are dead. Despite their reputation of being alive, Jesus saw them for what they really were, spiritually dead. So, just because we might have a good reputation, good attendance, finances, programs, community outreach, it doesn't matter. It's no guarantee of true spiritual character. Now, it's interesting in this letter that Jesus didn't encourage the Christians and starters to stand strong against persecution or false doctrine. It's because they didn't have any. They had good doctrine and they didn't have any persecution. Why wouldn't Satan be attacking this church? That Satan's two main prongs is persecution, physical persecution and deception with false doctrine. Well, they're dead. <laughs> How is a dead person any threat to you? A dead church is no threat to Satan either. And so Satan, he's pretty clever. He just leaves it alone. He just lets his little sleepy dead church be comfortable and complacent, happy with their reputation, sitting on their laurels, so to speak, and enjoying a comfortable life. And that's what Satan does with comfortable and complacent Christians today. He doesn't want to persecute them, make them suffer, because that would only make them wake up. So he leaves them alone to go through the motions and feel good about themselves. So again, just to emphasize this point, what does Satan want? Sleepy Christians snoozing their life away, ineffective as soldiers for the kingdom of God. Dead. So, Consider this, a legalistic church is a dead or at least a dying church. And similarly, a legalistic Christian is a dead or at least dying Christian. Now why? It's because legalism kills love. Legalism kills love. Legalism is based on works, on earning salvation, and it leads to a very demanding, self-righteous and ungrateful attitude. A legalistic church focuses on getting everything right, but doesn't focus on love. And a church without love is a church without life. It's dead. On the other hand, grace means receiving something beautiful and valuable that we don't deserve. And the more we understand grace, the more we develop an attitude of gratitude where we learn to love Jesus for who he is. Now, the evidence of life in a church is its, its love. It's love. Love is the heartbeat of any church. 
And so Jesus, like, he puts his finger on the pulse of the church of Sardis and he can't feel a heartbeat. There's no love in that church. So verses 2 and 3, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect or complete before God. Remember therefore how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Now that's why I went through the history of the Reformation. They received and heard the word of God, right? Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. And so now Jesus tells the church of Sardis what he wants them to do. So the first thing is to be watchful. You go back to the history. What weren't they? They were not watchful. They were overconfident, self-confident. They needed to examine and protect and strengthen the things which remain. So this tells us that though the spiritual condition of the church of Sardis was really bad, it wasn't hopeless. There's always going to be something that remains that can be strengthened. Jesus had not given up on them. Even though they were ready to die, Jesus wants them to come back. He wants them to be watchful. Now what's the opposite of being watchful? As I said before, it's being overconfident and resting in a false sense of security. And remember we talked about Sardis being conquered twice because they didn't bother guarding their walls. They were confident their high cliffs would keep people out. And the spiritual state of the church in Sardis was a reflection of the city's historical character where they didn't guard their own city. Their overconfidence led to the downfall. They just relied on their reputation. And in the believer, this overconfidence can easily come from a legalistic and prideful attitude. We can think, oh, I've read the Bible through plenty of times before. I don't need to do that anymore. Oh, I've taught Sunday school for 20 years. I don't need to serve in the church anymore. I've done my stint. And you just kind of sit back, slowly go to sleep, <laughs> let the others do the serving. No, God doesn't want us to stop. Verse 2 says, I have not found your works perfect or complete before God. So they're not measuring up to God's standard. Now remember what we said last week, if it's not done out of love, then it makes no difference eternally. It's all going to burn. Another way that our works may not be perfect is when we don't finish what we start. God may give us something to do, some ministry, but we don't finish it. Or we don't give it 100% and we quit before we finish. And for many years, my devotional life is like this. My prayer life, Bible study and fellowship were inconsistent. And I wasn't faithful to devote myself to my relationship with God. Also, I can think of when I used to teach Sunday school, I was not faithful to give 100%. I would probably say that God would have said the same thing about my Sunday school teaching when I was a teenager. Just half-hearted, you know. I'm pretty sure he would have said, I have not found your works complete. So, I'm trying harder now. <laughs> the Reformation, although it was a good start, it wasn't actually complete. And for example, practices like infant baptism are still carried out even today. That was not stopped. And there's other things too that were not corrected. Not all the false teaching and unbiblical practices were purged or removed. Now I want to go into the Old Testament and... I thought of King Jehu in the Old Testament. He was a king of northern Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, because below them there was Judah. God told him to wipe out Baal worship in Israel and return to worship the true living God. Well, Jehu did half of what God told him to do. He got all the Baal worshippers together, said Ahab worshipped Baal a little, Jehu was going to worship Baal a lot, and so he got all the Baal worshippers, put them all in the temple, he said, make sure not one Baal worship is missing. And then he killed them all. He got rid of all the Baal worship in Israel. But he continued to worship the two golden calves that Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, had made. And if you read through the Old Testament, Kings and Chronicles, again and again and again, it refers to these two calf idols that were made by Jeroboam. So he was not completely submitted to God's word. His works were not perfect or complete, and eventually his family line was destroyed 
because of their unfaithfulness, despite the partial good that he had done. Verse 3, Remember therefore how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. So, what Jesus is telling them to do is remember how they first received and heard the word of God. They must hold fast to those things and repent by once again submitting to the authority of the word of God over their lives to become doers and not just hearers. Now, there's a great verse in 1 Thessalonians 2.13 which describes to us how we should receive the word of God. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of man, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So when we truly take it as being the word of God, being from God, and not just the word of man, not just someone's opinion, then it effectively works in us when we believe. So what was received initially? Well, the Bible. The Bible. Rick, Calvin, Knox, Luther. Remember how it was received initially. It was precious. It was important. And remember how far you have come from that foundation. Here's a quote which brings home just how far the Reformation Church has fallen. Tragically, the Jesus Project, the group of theologians who concluded that it is more blessed to give than to receive, is the only verifiable phrase uttered by Jesus, is compromised of mainline Protestants. What they did was they voted on which sayings of Jesus were spoken by Jesus. <laughs> and so they were greater than the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and so... Most of these guys in the Jesus Project, you know, they just basically disregarded everything that Jesus said. Well, we don't know if Jesus really said that. And they said, the only thing we all agree that Jesus said is, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And their sin is greater in God's economy than the abuses of the Roman church with her bloodshed and immorality because they have brought into liberal theology. And what's worse, they are undermining people's beliefs by muddying even the clearest statements of Christ. And that's the end of that quote. Now, can you imagine taking the authority of the word of God, which they held so dear, and then coming down to this point here in today's age and say, oh, the only thing we think that Jesus actually said was, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Remember, okay, and we can do the same thing. This applies to us too. Is it real to us? Are we still being obedient to what we know is true? Just because I know something doesn't mean I'm living it. Knowing and believing are two different things. Knowing and doing are two different things. Now Jesus says, In verse 3, therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. Now, Jesus says, if you don't get back to basics, I'm going to come to you as a thief. Now, more and more of the mainline denominations, the Reformation denominations, are increasingly refusing to believe in the rapture or even a millennium, the thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ. And what they teach instead is that the promises of the kingdom, the sayings of Isaiah, the teaching of Revelation, are simply allegorical. And so they're saying, don't look for the rapture and don't look for a real kingdom to be established on the earth. That's never going to happen. It's just allegorical. We just go straight to heaven. Therefore, they're going to be totally caught off guard by Jesus' return. When he comes back at the rapture, well, they don't even believe in it, but it doesn't mean they're not going to go up (laughs) if they're still truly saved. Verse 4, you have a few names inside us who have not defiled their garments and they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. Now, this is important. A few names, even inside us. Jesus looked at this place and he goes, this is awful. Now, the other people, like Pergamos, the other churches, Pergamos and Thyatira, there are a few bad people amongst a lot of good people. But here, there's only a few good people amongst a lot of bad people a lot of um, unfaithful people. 
And I hope you notice that Jesus had nothing good to say about this church, the church of the Reformation. Nothing. In verse 4, who have not defiled their garments. Jesus referred to defiled garments. Now, why? Well, back in the culture of the day, if you had dirty clothes, you couldn't go into a pagan temple. And this is also true for us. Jesus gives us white robes, which represent his righteousness. And we can only approach the Father once we have received Jesus' righteousness. And that's typified or pictured by the white robes. However, we can defile our garments practically. Positionally, we're, we're all good, yeah? But practically, we can defile ourselves and we separate ourselves from God on a relational level. And I just want to read Psalm 24, 3-5. It says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So, who is accepted by God? Whose worship, whose prayer, whose Bible study is accepted by God? Those who have clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, etc. He shall receive blessing from the Lord. So, this means that if we have sin in our lives, including the sin of apathy or complacency, like the Church of Sardis, then we're going to be relationally separated from Jesus. Not, not positionally, but relationally. It's like having an argument with someone in your family. They're still family, but you're just not talking. And a good example of this is King David. He murdered Uriah the Hittite and then covered it up. And for over a year, he didn't repent. You can read Psalm 38 and Psalm 51 to read David's description of what it was like to be out of relationship with God, out of fellowship with God. He was most likely going to the temple and going through the motions of worshipping God. He was a king. He had to. But on the inside, he was self-righteous, suffering, isolated and feeling very alone. Verse 4 continues, And they shall walk with me in white. So, where are they going to be walking? Who are they going to be walking with? With Jesus. So, there's a guy in the Old Testament who walked with God, and he was not. So God took him. Who was that? Enoch, yeah. It speaks of close fellowship, and they shall walk with me in white. It speaks of close fellowship. Now, white in that culture was the color of triumph for the Romans. So if they won a battle, they'd wear white. So in that sense, it speaks of our ultimate triumph in Jesus, as well as speaking of our righteousness, which we have in Jesus. Now, walk with me. I love this. I'd encourage you to underline it in your Bible. This is what God wants us to do. What did Adam and Eve do in the garden? They walked in the garden. In the cool of the day, they talked with God. So Jesus wants us to walk with him. And this is the greatest reward that Jesus can ever give us. The Christians in Sardis who made the choice to avoid the sinful compromise of the city would be rewarded with a closer, more intimate walk with Jesus. That's it. They would have a closer love relationship with God. That's the reward for turning away from sin, turning away from compromise from being diligent in our quiet time. Now, it's important to remember that the pure in heart can have greater intimacy with God, not because they've earned it, but simply because they're more interested in the things of God. It's all they're waiting for us, but sometimes we just don't want to receive it. What does Matthew 5, 8 say? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall See God. Now, I was going to read Psalm 84. It's one of my favorite psalms, and it talks about dwelling in God's house, and that represents being in his presence. It re it's the same thing as walking with God, okay? Because back then, the temple represented the presence of God. So if we're going to experience the presence of God, then we need to walk with him. So I'll just read a little bit of Psalm 84. 
How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh cry out for the living God. Verse 5, Blessed is a man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. They go from strength to strength, each one appears before God in Zion. And then verse 10, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is a man who trusts in you. So that's about walking with the Lord. It's about enjoying that beautiful love relationship. But what about those people who live in the church but are not of it? Who have a reputation that they are alive but they are dead? What shall be done with the mere professors of faith but are not possessors of faith? What is going to become of those who are outwardly religious but are inwardly self-seeking? Well, what's the description of these people? They're false converts. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. They're going to burn in the lake of fire forever. And now, thinking about that, come to verse 5. The book of life. And we'll finish with the book of life. It says in verse 5, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So now we come to the reward. The overcomers are those who have not defiled their garments, and they're going to wear these white garments. It's all about purity, as we've talked about. Jesus gives us an important lesson in this white gut, this, the importance of putting on his righteousness in Matthew 22, 11 to 14. It says, But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to his servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There'll be weeping and gnashing teeth. So the guest who was not wearing the wedding garment was thrown out out of the feast into the lake of fire, out of darkness. What did Adam and Eve try and do? They tried to cover themselves, and that represents their own good works. What did God do instead? He killed an animal. Animal skin covered them. It points to Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' righteousness being imputed to us. Because our righteousness is like filthy rags in God's sight. Now, the last bit here, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. That sounds scary, doesn't it? I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Now, in the ancient world, back then, your name was written in the book of life, that which is, in that case, the city register. So if you were in that city, a part of that city, your name was on that city register. Now, if you died, there goes your name. Or if you committed a crime, had a criminal conviction, it would be blotted out. You wouldn't be a citizen of that city anymore. Well, guess what? It works the same with God's book of life. Now, does this mean that you can lose your salvation? Or does it mean that everyone's name is in the book of life, and then when we die, if we're not saved, it gets rubbed out? That's kind of how I see it. This is all about assurance. The context of verse 5 is about assurance. And so I don't believe that God is in heaven. You know, oh, you did something wrong? Rub your name out. You repent? Oh, I better write it back in now. No, it's not like that. However, I think it's good to look at the book of life. The book of life. There's a few references I'll just quickly look at before we finish. The first one is Revelation 20 verse 12. So the book of life is going to be opened and referenced on the day of judgment at the great white throne judgment. So verse 12 in Revelation chapter 20, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which are written in the books. 
Now, the book of life is important because it determines if we go to heaven or hell. Revelation 20, verse 15. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 10, verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you because they were casting out demons, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven, in the book of life. And there's a few references to people being blotted out of the book of life. And they are Exodus 32, 32 and 33. That's the first two of them. This is Moses talking. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. So he's interceding for the people. He's saying, like Paul did in the New Testament, you know, take my salvation and give it to them. And the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. So those who don't repent will be blotted out. Psalm 69 verse 28. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. Then we have Revelation chapter 3 verse 5. And the last one is Revelation 22:19. If anyone takes away the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life. So, as I said before, the way I see it, it's like this. It's like the city register. When you're born, your name goes in the book. When you die, it's rubbed out. But as a Christian, if you're saved, if you're forgiven, if you're born again, your name remains written in the book of life. And verse 5 says, But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. That's an awesome promise. Jesus is proud of us. He's not going to be ashamed of us. Am I ashamed of Jesus though? (laughs) He's got more reason to be ashamed of me than I have to be ashamed of him. But he's never ashamed of me and sometimes I am ashamed of him. So the general exhortation to hear, so what's the conclusion to all this? Well, we all need to hear what the Spirit is speaking And for us now, it's easy to drift in sleepy apathy towards spiritual death, even when you have a good reputation. People can think you're a strong Christian, but inside you might be drifting away. And it kind of relates back to the church of Ephesus, where you left your first love. So don't rely on your reputation. Don't rely on your past successes. And we need to be watchful. And this has a good application for temptation, for sin. Guess where we're most likely to fall as far as temptation goes? Our weakness or our strength? It's probably our strength. Now, the scripture saying 1 Corinthians 10 12 and 13, or verse 12 says, He who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. So the things we think we're strong in, we tend to rely on our own strength, and therefore we make a mess of it. (laughs) But the things which we're weak in, we recognize that we need to depend on God, and what do we do? Pray, ask him for help, and he helps us. So I'm just going to read those verses to finish up. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 and 13 Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So beware that you don't trust in your own strengths. Actively depend on the Lord for strength in all parts of of our lives don't think you can handle the things you're good at (laughs) because remember that Satan is stronger than you so Father I just thank you Lord for this church Lord they started well but finished very poorly compromise complacency trusting in the reputation Lord it's an easy slide that can happen to us in our lives too 
as we become overconfident. And the enemy comes in and scales that cliff, even though we think he can't, and then he destroys us. He, he conquers us. And we're defeated as a Christian. So I pray, Father, that you help us to always be watchful, to strengthen the things that remain, to build up those defences, to build up our faith, and not to rely on past victories, not to rely on our reputation, not to rely on our own strength, but, Lord, to rely only on you and to hold fast to the truth of the gospel, to be willing to die for that, to make sure that nothing is more important than holding on to what's true and not just knowing what's true, but doing and living what's true. So we just pray all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.